0: Just watching episode thirty-four, knowing, and welcome to the one and only podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin, and I'm disappointed once again that Daniel Lewis is not able to join us in the studio for this movie because this was one movie he actually put on our list a long time ago, and we just never got it into our schedule to talk about. And well, it just seemed like since I was in apocalyptic mode with the movie 2012, that it would be useful to see the other end of the spectrum. Because while 2012 was kind of a, a fun thrill ride through um, kind of the end of the world with, you know, a family going through all kinds of weird escapes, and it it, it was just to be honest, ridiculous. This movie is totally different. It's like the serious haunted house version of the end of the world where there's creepy music and slow pacing and tons of suspense and horrific scenes of death that just, oh, I shudder to even think about because they they tear me up every time I watch it. And I've seen this movie several times now. But Just with that in mind, I will warn you that if you haven't seen this movie, that this movie is not suitable for children. You could probably let them sit in on 2012 and have some fun discussions afterwards, but this movie is not suitable for children. Do pay attention to the rating on it. There is, in addition to what I've already talked about with the serious suspense and the the tension in the movie, there's horrific scenes of death, there's drinking, there's bad language. There's just a lot of things in this movie that would make it not appropriate for children. So do pay attention to the PG-13 rating. Now, one of the things that really makes this movie what it is when it comes to the uh, the suspense is the music. And it absolutely lovely soundtrack, but in place is a very creepy soundtrack track as well. But I have to tip my hat to the uh, music making ability of Marco Beltrami because without him this movie would have been nothing. And lest you think that that is the mood of the movie, here's how the movie actually started. if that doesn't raise the hair on your arms and send shivers up and down your spine i don't know what will because that does it for me the beginning of that movie is so creepy right up to the scene where you have the uh, the little girl scratching her fingers bloody on the inside of the closet door i'm not one for horror movies and that with that kind of introduction it feels like a horror movie but really it it isn't a horror movie it's an apocalyptic end of the world thriller and so there are scenes in it that are disturbing, but it is not necessarily the kind of blood and guts, horrific, kind of scare you horror movie that I typically don't like. I actually like creepy movies that make you think, and this movie makes you think. Now, one of the first things that it makes you think about is, of obviously, prophecy, because there's a, that's what the whole movie is about. That's where it gets its title, Knowing, because... This is about a guy who finds out in advance about the end of the world.
1: I need to tell you something. Yes? That sermon you preached every year at Pentecost about the gifts of the Spirit, one was the gift of prophecy.
2: 1 Corinthians
1: 12. Yes, I remember it. The church should respect the prophet. I have a prophecy it's about to be proven accurate.
0: Now assuming that you have seen the movie, you know that the prophecy comes from a bunch of numbers that were written by a little girl 50 years before and put in a time capsule, and John the protagonist of this movie is the one his son actually is the one that gets these numbers when they dole out the contents of the of the time capsule to the children at the elementary school. And he's the one that figures out the, the. it's not really a code, it's just he figures out where to divide the numbers to figure out what they mean. And he uses the nine eleven uh tragedy as the key. And once he figures that one out, then he's able to figure out what all the rest of them mean. And they basically add up to all of the global tragedies from the time that the girl wrote wrote the numbers until the current time. And there's three left that haven't occurred yet. And so he, the whole movie is him, well, a good bit of the movie is him trying to stop these three last three things from happening, and he finds out that he can't stop them. But this particular conversation that I just played is where he, at, near the end of the movie, has a conversation with his father. Now, his father is a pastor, and they've been estranged for several years, and he calls him to let him know that the end of the world is coming and that he, well, he basically says there's something coming and you need to take cover. Now the gifts of the spirit that they talk about this uh, sermon that he had preached in first Corinthians 12, I'm going to read you the text for that, just so that you can place yourself. I mean, they don't give you the text in the movie, but this is the, the scripture that is referred to. This is first Corinthians 12, one through 11. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the the one Spirit." To another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, basically, that boils down to say that all of those gifts come only from the Holy Spirit. And because of that, and the the lead-in that says that you can't Um, speak against God if you're speaking through the spirit and you cannot speak for God unless you're speaking through the spirit. And basically that boils down to mean that you cannot have a gift of prophecy unless it is from God. And so these numbers in the movie are not a biblical prophecy. They do not come from God. In fact, you're kind of introduced towards the end to the fact that they come from the whispers who are actually aliens and they are not. Uh, there's nothing spiritual about it. It's just uh, aliens coming to save certain people, and the people who hear the whispers are called to be saved, and those who don't are not called to be saved. Now, the 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 point that I'm trying to make here is is that while this movie is an interesting story, and it comes out that the prophecy is true in the movie, it is because it is a story. It's fictional. You can make fiction come out any way you want. So you can make a prophecy and then make the prophecy come true. But if you are a Christian and you are familiar with your scripture and you understand the uh, apocalyptic writings of the Bible, then even though it is, it does say in the Bible that the earth will end in fire that the heavens and the earth will will be destroyed with fire. It it there's a whole lot of things that have to happen before that. And so for this movie to have been true for this uh, prediction of the end of the world to be by a solar flare that destroys the planet or at least the ability for life to exist on the planet. There for that to have been a biblical prophecy there were to come true there would have had to have been a lot of other things that happened before it because there are some things in the scripture that that speak of the end times that have yet to come come to pass. Now, the way they set this up in the movie is they do it using aliens. And uh, it's actually, if you're familiar with any of the more popular writings about uh, some of the Old Testament prophecy having to do with Ezekiel, you'll find that what they put in this movie actually ties into some pop culture stuff from the 1960s. Has anyone found life on other planets?
1: Not yet. Guess it's just us for now. Okay, then how many that might have life? Well, if you count the number of stars similar to our sun in this galaxy, then you factor in the probability that they have Earth-like planets orbiting them. There are 10 million possible worlds with 4 million mature enough for life to evolve.
0: This part of the movie really stood out to me because they were talking about the possibility of life on other planets. And this is one of the things that secular atheism and various other scientific cults have been really trying to push Well, I would say probably for the last hundred years or so that there are aliens and there's life on other planets. And if life evolved here on Earth, then all it took is the right conditions and another place and another part of the of the galaxy or even another part of the universe the same thing could have occurred and there could be other intelligent life evolving on planets just like ours elsewhere the problem with that is is that the more we learn about what's going on out in the in the in in just in our galaxy it's really hard to see into other galaxies but in our galaxy some of the things that we've learned about exoplanets actually points in another direction because they've been finding um evidence of stars that have planets but the planets are not the right kind of planets and they're not the right distance from the suns to produce life so when we we find um those stars like ours, as they say in here, what is the probability that there would be a planet that is just exactly perfect for the existence of life? It's actually probably very exceedingly rare. And I think the more that we we examine and the more that we find, I think the more we will realize that we may actually be alone in this galaxy. And if not this universe, except for God, because he created this entire world for us this entire universe for us. That's what it says in Genesis. And unless he chose to establish that creative power somewhere else as well, it it just doesn't make sense otherwise. And do check out the show notes because once again, those are going to be, are you just watching slash 34? And I'm going to put a link to, an article or two on exoplanets um, from a creationist point of view, because there's some really interesting research that has gone on regarding that. And it, it would um, be helpful for you to see that. Now they also show at the very end of this movie, they show the children on another planet because they're, they're taken away and they're dropped into another planet. And there's a, a, like a picture of a, of a new Eden basically. So they're, they're in the, agenda of this movie they're trying to put forward that there's an alien species out there that's planting life on planets and when one planet gets close to d- to destruction then they take the most promising young life off of that planet and move it somewhere else so that the life can continue and uh, it's, it's a nice thought but um, uh, I don't go there Kill I want
1: you to come with me we're going now but we have to go with them they won't hurt us Abby, are you okay? Your mom wanted to be here, honey. I know. The Whisper people told me that Mommy's safe now. They've been protecting us all along, Dad. They sent a message ahead of them to prepare the way. And now they've
2: come for us.
0: So there's the explanation for the aliens. You actually never see the aliens in this movie say anything other than the every so ever so often you know the whispering that you catch and the whispering's really creepy but um the one time you see one of them open their mouths he actually shouts light at uh, john it's i it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie because um the the whole idea that communication could be on a light spectrum instead of an auditory spectrum is kind of an interesting thought but but the whispers themselves are just um uh when you actually see them outside of their humans, uh, human likeness that they wear through the whole movie, they actually, it almost looks like the movie producers were trying to uh, create something that would fit with the Ezekiel count in Ezekiel chapter one. And there's a reason for that. But first of all, let me read to you just a, a verse or two out of Ezekiel one so you can see the, the, um, the way it works. Ezekiel one hundred thirteen As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. Now the reason why I say that that's, they were trying to make it look like Ezekiel, and I don't know that they actually were or not. I, I looked at some of the, the director's commentary on the DVD, and no, nowhere did they say that they got the description for the creatures, uh, for the whispers from the creatures that are described in Ezekiel. But they do, when they shed their human likeness, they they look like they're glowing, like glowing coals inside a translucent skin. And so that's what made me think that they were at least maybe had thought of Ezekiel when they were trying to figure out how their aliens would look. and But that's about where the resemblance ends because the creatures in Ezekiel had faces on four sides and uh, they went in each direction depending on the will of the spirit. And so there's a lot of different um, differences between what's described in Ezekiel and what they try to portray in this movie. Though the wheel within a wheel uh, is definitely a, portrayed in the spaceship that comes down the end. It, it is There is definitely a lot of wheels going on in that whole uh, construction. And so I think they were trying to make you think that maybe this could have been what Ezekiel saw um, at the beginning of his prophetic book in the Bible. Now the reason that they may have been pushing Ezekiel so hard in this movie, and I don't know, if for like I said, it, I don't really know what was going through the minds of the producers, the writers of this film. But they're in the in the middle of the 20th century, there was a, a, a gentleman by the name of Eric von Daniken, and he published a series of books, um, the most popular one of which was called Chariots of the Gods, in which he theorized the idea of extraterrestrials coming and uh, visiting ancient peoples. And I, I'll I'll post some links about him in the show notes, but the basic underlying theory for that is is that I think about the or middle of the 20th century was when A lot of the evolutionary scientists are beginning to realize that there just isn't, no matter how much time you throw at it, there just is no way you can get life on a planet. they, They just chew and chew and chew on that problem of where does life come from. And the only thing that they can come up with other than God is aliens from another planet the only problem with that theory is that it delays the whole, where does life come from to another planet? You keep delaying it and you keep delaying it. I mean, where did the life on the other planet come from? And then where did that life come from? And Where did that life come from? You, you're just delaying the problem. You're never actually solving it. So eventually, you're going to have to realize that there is a God. There is this all-knowing power that created life. And But that, once again, that's even beside the point. But anyway, this, um, this gentleman, Eric Von Daniken, had created this idea that Um, In the chariots of the gods, what Ezekiel described in the Bible was actually in a close encounter of the third kind, where he actually met aliens, and they came down their spaceship. And he didn't really, um, I mean, coming from an ancient people's point of view, he didn't have any way of explaining what he was seeing. And so he made it into a a visitation from God instead of from aliens. Now, there's a big assumption in that. And... um, it, it's interesting because if you come at it from the point of view of as a creationist, there's absolutely no problem with thinking that ancient peoples were highly intelligent and had a lot of high technology, uh, were able to create wonderful things like the pyramids and other various things that we find in archeology. span But the, the people who think that, uh, that we started out as grunting apes and have gotten more intelligent and that we're at the pinnacle of our evolution now, They believe that all of these amazing things that we find in archaeology, there's just no way ancient man could have done it. And so they have to come up with other explanations as for the pyramids and for other things in in our ancient culture. I mean, they've even found artifacts that suggest uh, flying aircraft long before uh, we've ever even dreamed of flight in the modern era. And so, you know, these, these people like Daniken and others came up with these ideas that, We were seated by uh, ancient or ancient alien species that came and, and gave us these technologies. And that's their only explanation. It's the only way they can figure it out. Though it makes perfect sense if you hold to a biblical point of view.
1: Now, I want you to think about the perfect set of circumstances that put this celestial ball of fire at just. The correct distance from our little blue planet for life to evolve, making it possible for you to be sitting here in this riveting lecture. (laughs) But that's a nice thought, right? Everything has a purpose. An order to it is determined. But then there's the other side of the argument, the theory of randomness which says it's all simply coincidence. The very fact we exist is nothing but the result of a complex yet inevitable string of chemical accidents and biological mutations. There is no grand meaning. There's no purpose.
0: Now this clip was obviously taken right near the beginning of the movie, where John still doesn't believe uh, that such a thing as prophecy could exist, even though he's the son of a pastor and has been raised believing in at least certain amounts of prophecy. The thing is, is we find out that John himself has had an incident happen fairly recently in his life that has caused him to lose his faith. And so he is putting his lack of faith in science. Instead of having any kind of uh, foundation for living and for purpose and for meaning, he is just believing in randomness. In fact, uh, right after this uh, statement, one of the students asks him what he believes, and he replies, and I paraphrase because he used a bad word, well, stuff just happens. And he doesn't have any basis, any faith, and that's because he has lost somebody very close to him, and he can't see any purpose for that loss he starts playing with this idea of determinism versus randomness, and it's all couched in evolutionary terms in which, uh, you know, was this planet set in just the right place for life to begin, which I think is kind of funny because at the same time they're saying that in the movie, they're also saying that probably life was seeded on this planet by aliens. So therefore life didn't actually begin on this planet. To me, the evolutionary point of view makes no sense. If you actually look at it, um just bare bones what it's saying it just it's bizarrely absurd and it, to me that whole statement that he just said comparing determinism with randomness just illustrates that to a a very good degree that you know it it there there is no meaning if you're taking science you know in what it can describe and this is an astrophysics class so he's teaching students about his lack of faith, basically he's trying to, to um, push it on the next generation as to that there really isn't any meaning and that this is all that there is and it's all random and it just happened by chance and where's the hope in that? And and if your purpose is not to find hope in it, then what are we living for? If, if it's all just a bunch of coincidental accidents, then um, where is the meaning? And I think that they actually bring this out in the movie because I cut the clip at, as soon as he stops speaking, but there is a long point of silence right after that because he's, he's lecturing to the class, but he's at the same time, I think, um, thinking to himself that he has no meaning. And so he just stops talking and he just stands there and he has this expression on his face that just is so lost. He has nowhere to go. He has... He has no meaning and no purpose, and it's devastating to him. And I think that's, that's what draws the question, what, what do you believe, Professor? And then you also see John take the additional step to actually spurn anything having to do with faith. Because not only is he um, believing in the randomness that gives him no hope and no purpose, but he's actually actively spurning any help that he can get from his family who do have faith and do have purpose.
1: What have you got going on? I'll say a prayer. Please
0: don't. Now, the funny thing about that for me is that I've even known people who spurn God in in about every aspect of their lives, but they're still willing to have people pray for them. And so for him to even tell his sister, please, just don't even bother saying a prayer for me. I I reject it all. I want nothing to do with it. And to me, that is just like the ultimate. He's he's taken the, the full step away from God to the ultimate angle of, I don't even want anyone else acknowledging that God exists on my behalf. Now, this movie even takes you all the way to the edge of what science can actually do. And it's actually very scary because when you find out that the end of the world is coming and you can scientifically discern it, can even figure out how it's going to happen and why, well, actually you just find out how it's going to happen. It doesn't answer the why.
1: We're both wrong. The numbers are a warning, but not just to me or any random group. They're a warning to everyone. The superflare. in our own solar system. A 100 micro tesla wave of radiation that would destroy our ozone layer. Killing every living organism on the planet.
0: And of course, with that scientific explanation for how the end of the world is going to happen comes the next question, the only other one that really makes sense in this context.
1: I thought there was some purpose to all of this. Why don't I get this prediction if there's nothing I can do about it? How am I supposed to stop the end of the world?
0: And this is the point where the person who was so stuck on randomness as the explanation for everything because of the death of his wife and various other things in his life made him think that there couldn't be any meaning or reason or purpose for why people die or any of that suddenly becomes a believer in determinism because now he realizes that there is an end to the world. It was predicted and there isn't anything he can do about it. There's not a thing he can do that will stop it. And it, it's a moment of truth because right after this, he, makes, he starts to, um, to, to you know close in some of those ties that he hadn't before. He calls his father, which was something his wife had wanted him to do. And he's not talked to his father since she died, actually since before she died. And so he starts mending some of those relationships, realizing that the end is near and it's time to start um, wrapping things up. Of course, this whole faith versus science uh, underlying tone of this movie was not a mistake. If you go and listen to the uh, extra footage, the bonus stuff on the DVD, you, you come across a statement that pretty much tells you that all of this was on purpose.
2: I'm just fascinated by the two opposite ends of the spectrum, science and faith. I can see the argument for each side of the equation, and I personally sit somewhere in the middle. But for me, it's really about a sort of a, a search for meaning uh, in in the universe and in life.
0: So, of course, now you know that the the whole build up of the per, the science and the faith and all of that was put in the movie on purpose. So, I want to take you back. To the beginning of the movie, where right after that that little boy asked uh, his father, uh, Caleb asked John um, about the aliens and the possibility of aliens on other planets and all of that. There was a scene that was later on that night where John is tucking him into bed, and he realizes that there may have been some uh, something underli- underneath Caleb's question, and so he addresses that.
1: When I said it was just us out there, you know I was talking about space, right? I didn't mean heaven or anything. I'm sure wherever mom is... Dad, you don't even believe in heaven. I never said that, Caleb. I just said we can't know for sure. That's all. If you want to believe, you go ahead and believe. Okay?
0: And that, my friends, is the agnostic approach to the question of heaven and God and all of that. If that if it makes you feel better to believe it, then you go ahead and believe it. I just don't know for sure. I, I'm wondering where the comfort is when you're telling your child that, yeah, I, I don't know for sure there's a heaven. I don't know for sure your mother is there. But if it makes you feel better, then you go ahead and believe it because it's important that you feel better about it. Um, to me, that's not very good parenting. You have you give your your kids answers not i don't knows or we can't be sure's none of that is going to help that child deal with the issue that his mother died and i understand that in this in this context john doesn't even understand why his wife died and so he can't explain it to his son and to be honest that's why people should explore christianity because we do have the answers we have the answers to why um lives seem to be cut short There seems to be no sense in it, unless you understand that God has a purpose for each of us and that when he's done, he calls us home. And because of sin, there is death in the world. And the only way to escape that death because of sin is through Jesus Christ and his saving grace of God, that our sins can be forgiven. So there are answers to those questions, and they obviously are not given in this movie because you know, John himself doesn't have the answers. And so he's throwing a lot of maybes and I don't knows, and we can't know for sures at his son, which is not helping his son deal with any of the issues that his son has.
1: I always thought you were supposed to sense when the people you love are in danger. I didn't feel anything.
0: Now this, this clip comes a little after a little further on in the movie when he's talking to Diana, the, other person with a child who hears the whispers and all of that that's going on in the movie. And he's telling her about the, the day or the night that his wife died in a fire in a hotel and that he doesn't understand why he'd always thought that he would know when his loved ones were in danger and he didn't feel anything when she was dying. So because of that, he loses his faith and decides to believe in randomness which we've already heard him discuss once, but he actually goes on from what he just said while he's talking to Diana.
1: Well, but my point is that from then on, I decided that no one could know what was coming. And life was just a string of random accidents and mistakes. And then I got that list. If that had come to me before Elson left, I would have saved her life.
0: Now, the ironic thing about what he just said was that he's been busy trying to stop the the three events that were left on the list and finding out that he couldn't stop, stop them, that they were going to happen regardless of where he was or how he was involved. And so what makes him think after not being able to stop the plane crash that killed uh, 80-something people, or the subway crash in in New York City that killed another 100-and-something people. What well, makes him think that, that he could have gone, if he had had the list, he would have been able to keep his wife from dying in that fire. So it, it's very interesting that he's, he's actually missing the point that if if you're going to believe in determinism rather than randomness, then there isn't anything you can do to change those events. They're going to happen regardless of Uh, they might even happen because of you. Now, as Christians, we don't necessarily believe in determinism. We don't believe that everything is set in stone per se, but we do believe that everything happens in the will of God, that he is ultimately sovereign. And so that whatever happens, it's within his plan and within his will that we don't die before he's ready for us to die. We don't, witness to somebody unless he has set up the divine appointment for it to happen. And we can miss those divine appointments as well. But there, that would also be, uh, to some extent within the will of God, because he is in ultimate control. If we're not going to witness to that person, he knows we're not going to do it. And he's already set up another appointment for that person. And the, I think it, it it's interesting that while they play with the whole idea of we can't change what's going to happen, in this movie, they don't ever bring out the whole idea of why can't we change what's going to happen, that there is an ultimate reason for that. And it's because God is in control. Now, the, um, the, the other character, the one he's talking to, Diana, her purpose is tied up in her daughter. And she actually spurns her mother because her mother had predicted the day she would die. And in sh- the whole time she's trying to save the children. She's trying to save her daughter and her whole life seems to be wrapped up in that one meaning that, that something has to, has to be done to save their children. And when I was contemplating this section on, on the, on this movie, it was interesting because I was listening to a series of sermons, and this is this is not a series by my pastor. It's actually a series by a friend of mine's pastor, and he shares the sermons and i on um, iTunes. And so I was listening to this series of sermons, and the the church that they were done at was uh, a Grace Fellowship in in uh, uh, Kentucky and i 'm going to put a link to the sermon series in the show notes because I highly encourage everybody to listen to it it 's called the um, well it 's the Idols of the heart sermons and that 's not exactly what it 's called on the on the web but he basically goes through sermon after sermon telling you how to to find the idols of your heart what you 're putting before God uh, in your in the way you 're living your life and it's a very good set of sermons to listen to when you're thinking about what your priorities are and where you're finding your purpose and your meaning, because God should always be your ultimate purpose and the ultimate meaning for what you're doing in your day to day walk and what you're working for, what you're living for, what you're even uh, your your family and everything else should be secondary to God. And so th- it's a really good sermon series and I highly encourage everybody to listen to it. But I'm going to conclude this section by quoting this piece of scripture from Ecclesiastes. Now, if, you're, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it can be a very depressing book, because the whole point of Ecclesiastes is that everything in life is vanity. It's meaningless. It has no point whatsoever. So it's, it's very interesting to be talking about the purpose and meaning of life and to bring up basically the concluding passage of Ecclesiastes, which, which was written by the King Solomon, who was considered to be one of the wisest men because he was gifted with wisdom by God. And he examined all of the what there is in life, you know, pleasure, work, and, uh, you know, riches and wealth and knowledge and all of these things. And he found out that they're all vain if you don't put God first. So this is from Ecclesiastes 12. 13 through 19, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is just really briefly, because one of the things that really struck me in this movie is that there's, there are a couple scenes in which John is either making promises or withholding information from his son and uh, for those of you who aren't listening to this right after I post it you might not understand maybe the historical context of what's been going on in the last month or two since I uh, did my episode on twenty twelve we had a pretty horrific school shooting and it you know it killed twenty uh kindergartners and first grade children and you know this mentally ill man just broke into the school and just opened fire and killed you know 26 people it was it was a terrible tragedy and one of the things that i kept thinking of as i was watching this movie is, is as a parent how do you decide what to tell your children you didn't
2: tell them anything of course not first
0: estimates put the presumed dead at 81
1: you need to talk? I just... <laughs> just want to sleep. What happened, Dad? What's going on? The truck broke down on the highway. more than that, isn't it? I'm going to bed. Get your homework done. And you should go to bed, too. No TV tonight. Why? I always watch an hour of TV. No more questions, Caleb. I can ask questions when you tell me things to do that don't make sense. You won't let me play stalker. You won't let me stay over at Jason's. And now you won't tell me what's going on and why you're acting so weird all the time? I'm not a kid anymore.
0: Now I'm not going to presume to answer that question. Number one, I am not married. I do not have children. So this is a situation I've never run into myself is when do you... What, what do you decide is the right amount of information to tell your children when there's tragedies going on and it's on the news? Do you keep them away from it? Do you let them know what's going on? I would actually be interested to have some of you chime in on that, maybe in the, the comments on the show notes, which, again, are at com slash 34. Now, the other thing that John does with his son uh, that he actually does it I think twice in the movie at, at once at the beginning and once at the end is that he makes a promise
1: you and me together.
2: Forever. forever.
0: Now, of course, in this context of this movie, he's assuring his son that because he lost his mother, he's not necessarily going to lose his father too. But it's almost a little bit humorous in the fact that at the beginning of the movie, when this particular clip is taken from John himself does not believe that there is a forever and so he's making a promise to his son that he himself believes he cannot make. And it just made me think that maybe we should be a little more careful about the promises that we make our, our children. And um, that's another thing I would like you guys to uh, chime in on if, if you have thoughts on it is like, how much do you tell your children and what kind of promises do you make? Can you, do you make the kind of promises, oh, I'll be home tonight, or uh, I'll always be with you, or, you you know, I'll dance with you at your wedding, or all the many things that we just flippantly promise without any sure knowledge of the future. We can hope that we'll be there, but can we really promise that we'll be there? Before I draw this discussion to a close, I do want to just briefly touch on how each of the characters in this movie deal with death because it is the final ending of the movie. Everybody dies except the kids. And it, it's just interesting how each of them express their preparedness for it. Now, the first is Diana. She's the one that has been told by her mother. Her mother's the one who was wrote the numbers when she was a child. And so she has this prediction of when she's going to die. Her mother actually told her the day that she was going to die. All my
1: life. And Abby's. I just don't believe anyone can predict my
2: future. And what
0: does it matter
2: anyway? We all die in the end. I don't want to know what my future holds.
0: So Diana's approach is denial. She knows we're all going to die. She doesn't want to know when. She doesn't want to know what her future holds. She just doesn't want to think about it. And so that's one way of facing death.
2: I appreciate your concern, but if, if it's my time, it's my time. I'm
1: uh, ready whenever the good Lord calls me. Are you?
0: Dad. Now I was kind of lost in static there at the end, but I think his father said, I'm ready. Are you? I think there was that question there. Are you ready? And... That's that's the whole point. It's like, is John ready? Because Diana's dead by this point. Well, she will be dead by the end of the movie. She dies trying to get the kids, trying to get to the kids when the Whisperers take them. And so she dies right on the day that her mother had predicted that she would die. So um, her death it happens in the movie separate from everyone else, which is the EE and the, at the end of the, the numbers that everyone else is going to die. She... she um, you know beats them by a, a few hours so john's father is ready he's he's has he's facing death with the surety of knowing where he's going and that he's prepared and so the next question is is john ready
1: this isn't the end son i know
0: from that statement we almost have to hope that in the end john was prepared that he understood, he was ready, and he met the end with his family, uh, reconciled with his father, and in a group hug. It was an interesting way to end the movie, though actually that wasn't the end of the movie, you then see the kids running on this alien planet towards this big flowering tree of, I guess, life. I don't know. Anyway, it was a, a weird visual thing that I can't give you a sound clip for because all it was was music. But even though that was the end of the movie, I do want to leave you with one last clip from the director.
1: Life as we know it could end. It's always just around the corner in a sense. Knowing that it could all end makes us enjoy our time on Earth.
0: So that seems to be the director's idea for what would be our purpose beyond uh, all of the other things that are, you know... I guess, explored in this movie, you know, being prepared, having a denial. His philosophy actually appears in in a couple places in Scripture. It's basically the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, just live life to the fullest, experience it, love it, enjoy it, because we're all going to die. That's basically what he said. Well, you can find that in Ecclesiastes, of course. It's in Ecclesiastes 8.15, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then again in Luke twelve fifteen through 21. And he said to them, and this is Jesus speaking, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Hey, did you see that?
2: (laughs) Hi, Eve. This is your former co-host, Daniel J. Lewis, now from oncepodcast.com. You're doing a great job with Are You Just Watching? I love the idea of this segment. I want to talk about Once Upon a Time, and I'm going to do so without spoiling it for anyone. In season one, someone said of another evil character – evil isn't born, it's made. Now this is contrary to what the Bible says, because the Bible says that we are born in sin. So from birth, we are in rebellion against God. But now in season two, and again, no spoilers here, but in season two, a character is struggling with their evil background. And we see their background was they were once given the opportunity to repent and change, and they rejected it and still chose evil. But now in their modern story, they are taking that chance and trying to do better, but not necessarily to repent, just to do better. Almost seems like the idea of doing good works now to outweigh the bad works that one has done before. Once Upon a Time is really exploring this idea of can a character be redeemed and once evil, always evil, and more like that. So it's great for that kind of discussion. And if anyone would like to hear more about Once Upon a Time and our discussion about it, they can check out our website over at oncepodcast.com. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. Thanks, Eve. Thanks so
0: much for that contribution, Daniel. It's so good to hear your voice on this podcast again. Now, our listeners can contribute the same way by sending us a a voicemail message by calling 903-231-2221, or they can email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And send us audio files, please. All, all standard audio files are welcome. You can also go to our website and either comment on the show notes, which are at areyoujustwatching.com slash 34, or they can actually click on the little link that's on the side of the web page, which says send a voice message. And of course, all of those ways can be also used to, to give feedback on this episode or, or, or even suggest movies that I can cover in, in future episodes. Now you can also um, follow me on Twitter, Twitter slash Eve Franklin, or you can um, like us on Facebook. Now I highly encourage that you come and like us on Facebook because I'm going to be making it, taking advantage of that page on Facebook to uh, post little snippets of of uh, news items and stuff that I I find that. You know have some Christian worldview impact, or just to quiz you on whether you can find uh, the worldview assumption and comment on it. So please join the community and and come and join us in uh, going beyond this podcast and finding out how we can apply what we're learning here to uh, things that we're seeing on social media and in the uh, video on the news, youtube that very the various places that you can find this kind of stuff. So I'm just ecstatic that you, ca- that you managed to listen through this incredibly long podcast. I do uh, suggest that you go and read the show notes because I'm going to be putting insights on the movie uh, that I was not able to record in this podcast in the show notes. So please do check them out, read through them, find out what other little tidbits I had in the movie that just didn't make it into the podcast. And be sure to subscribe, because if you subscribe, then even though I'm not really steady about getting these episodes out, whenever I do get one uploaded, you'll get it automatically. So do go ahead and take advantage of the subscriptions. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. And don't just watch.
2: Are you just watching as a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx? Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx.